Hello everyone, and welcome to Downsizing, the podcast where we try and figure out when The Office actually ended, because everyone would have been fired. My name is Curtis, and I'll be your host, and with me is my co-host and resident office expert, Antoinette. Hey everyone. Today we will be discussing Season 5, Episode 6, Crime Aid. In this episode, The Office gets robbed, Michael and Holly start dating, and Jim gets a little worried. In this cold open, we don't really accomplish much other than just getting a check-in with Pam. She has started a part-time job working at the corporate office of Dunder Mifflin in New York City because, as she says, living in the city is very expensive. So Michael helped her get a part-time gig at corporate. It's unclear what she's doing and she's just kind of in a desk cube probably just like some filing or something like that and as pam says unfortunately michael knows where to find her several hours of the week now and the cold open ends with michael just on the phone saying pamela over and over like that ricola um, cough drop commercial which i think was kind of popular like around that time Mm -hmm. my question is probably not great that pam ran out of money think she's almost done with the 12-week course but my question is did she plan well for this adventure knowing pam i would say no um we assume that since she is an ra she is getting room and board paid for so her her large expenses are covered right it is the going out and associated expenses that come with that that are probably taking a toll which i have to imagine in new york can happen pretty quickly for sure i mean just the cost of like just lunch could be crazy expensive per day the other thought i had and this is because i'm a boring lame adult now is like when she was saying she has the part-time job at corporate i'm like oh my god she doesn't have any health insurance (laughs) yeah that's that's probably true because she's not married to jim yet uh she would have had to seemingly quit her dunder mifflin job in scranton although it could have been like a sabbatical thing like she could have done she could not have done fmla because there are specific reasons behind that but she could have done like a sabbatical thing and then be planning to come back so maybe she's keeping some benefits i don't know i'm just saying she doesn't have health insurance yeah if you think back to season two when jan came to the office about the empowering women seminar sure and there was that program where they had like a graphic design That's program true. so maybe Pam could have like finagled it to where she could this could still be her working quote unquote Mm -hmm. and like Dunder Mifflin probably could have paid for her going to school in exchange for her working part time at corporate right and then intending on using that degree or whatever as a future career development thing for sure so there are ways And of course, like a comedy, even a drama, like a TV show is not delving into this nitty gritty 
level of unfun things. It was just something that popped into my head. That's what this podcast is for. <laughs> right, exactly. So, as I said, nothing really comes of this. It's just another one of those just kind of jokey cold opens. Yeah, there probably wasn't any other way to get Pam into this episode, quite honestly. For sure. And really, this episode, there isn't a whole lot that goes on except for one major development. And that is that Holly and Michael are officially a thing now. Yes. So the last we knew at the end of the baby shower episode, Michael had just walked in and just automatically gave Holly a hug. There's been a little bit of a time lapse. They've gone on, it seems like, two dates. So as we see them... In the office, uh, Michael is talking to Holly, and it seems like they went on a putt-putt date the night before. And they have really good banter back and forth. They always have had that. And Michael asks, you know, when can I take you out again? And Holly's immediate response is, she's free tonight. And she's like, is that too eager? Like, almost before Michael finishes his sentence, she says, tonight. They are clearly very smitten with each other and things are going well. So Michael comments that this is the third date and there's such a TV show trope. I don't know if anyone really does this in real life. I'm not sure, but I I think it has to come from somewhere. I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Far more uh, experienced daters than I, I suppose, but He says, you know, typically the third date is when people have sex. So I don't know. We'll see. I guess I'll know if Holly thinks the same way if she starts to have sex with me. (laughs) So we know that Michael isn't necessarily planning on making a move, but he'd be open to one if Holly did. And while this is true, we wouldn't really know it based off of pretty much the next interaction we see between Michael and Holly. Michael heads back to the annex and they're kind of just planning out what their night could be. And Holly has this idea that just seems so odd. So high school. And it's to go to the food court because then they could just get different kinds of food, whichever kind of food they like. A food court is never really an area that grown adults should be willingly choosing to get their meals from. That's what you go to when you're traveling and you're just like, oh God, I'm at the train station, I'm at the airport. What can I get quickly, maybe healthy, who knows? Although if it's healthy at an airport, it's like three times the price. It's a little shocking that they went to Cooper's to discuss the Meredith business ethics issue But for their third date, Holly's like, definitely food court at the mall. They're on date three and they're already at the, okay, we've stopped trying phase of their relationship. What what do you want to do tonight? I don't know. What do you want to do tonight? Especially if you live in a place that doesn't have like a lot of museums or cultural things to do or just anything beyond like a restaurant is what I'm trying to say. You're going to find yourself kind of like okay what's a new place we can go to dinner those are kind of you're going to be your limited options and I'm just I think of the summer I spent in Washington DC and I wish I had had someone to date at that time because there was so much to do every Friday there was a concert 
at the um, sculpture garden at the National Museum of Art. I mean, it was just amazing the amount there was to do. All the museums were free. It was like the perfect spot. If you're like, let's try something. You could try something new every single week the entire summer you were there. And so Holly is naming off things that they could potentially get at the food court. And Michael, with zero tact whatsoever, says, well, what I would get would probably depend on if we're having sex later. (laughs) And it's just kind of this very awkward moment. Yeah, it's like a record scratch moment. Yeah. And Michael is kind of like... uh, tries to save it but then his curiosity gets the better of him and he just flat out asks holly do you think we're going to be having sex tonight and holly very enthusiastically responds hell yeah it's sort of i don't know it is it's a little awkward to watch but Again, if either of them had any sort of reservations, that interaction would have gone a very different way. But because they both really like each other, they're both really enthusiastic about, you know, how this relationship is unfolding, like it works well for them. You don't often have uh, someone that you're newly dating, like check in about your physical plans for later in the day and then as the day goes on and they're getting ready to leave for the date it's sort of this weird killing time thing that they do yeah they know the ending of the day now the everything that happens between now and the end of the night is completely inconsequential because you already know what the best part of the night's gonna be well in theory you do sure and so, yeah, they are just, like you said, just kind of killing time and in really just in very awkward silence. Yeah, they're playing Go Fish. Yeah. Or, it, they're playing something. They're, they're playing, playing crazy. Some kind of card game. Yeah. And they're just sitting in silence. And like Michael checks his watch and Holly's like, is it time to go yet? And Michael's like, no, the reservation at the restaurant isn't for another hour and a half. Which, I don't know why, one, they made it so late. Two, why they're killing time at the office. Seemingly, everyone else has left. Yeah, why? So, I guess they're going to this date in the clothes that they wore to the office. They could have just, one, gone to one of their places and just banged it out to start the date. Like, then gotten food. Yeah. Um, no one says that that's the wrong way to have a date. Two, they could have just gone and got drinks while they were waiting for their dinner reservation. I mean, there was a multitude of ways to play it, but I think since they are both really tense about, okay, yeah, we both agreed that this is what's going to happen. It, they just had such this weird anticipation, and then that's how it went. So then as they're finally leaving... They get outside. Holly's like, oh, I forgot my keys. We need to go back inside. As they get back inside, Holly says it was just a ruse. She wanted to make out with Michael, but not in front of the cameras. Which, again, there was a lot of different options that wouldn't work for a mockumentary-style show. And that's why this is the production choice. She pulls him into the stairwell, and there is a cutaway. Like It's apparent they're making out. 
Holly asks, you know, do you think we have privacy? And Michael says, yeah, if we just turn down the microphones, but he turns it all the way up so the sound crew can still hear a little bit of what's happening. And it sounds like they're at the very least making out in the stairwell. I I have my own opinions on this. I have a feeling that you share the same opinion. Do you think Michael did that on purpose? Oh. Cranked up the, the microphones. That's a good thought because he really likes people to know when he has a girlfriend. Yeah. His his goings on in that sense because he has had such droughts in some respects and not had a lot of success with women. So he really does love people to know that information. So that's really plausible. That's a good thought. I absolutely think, yes, he did do that on purpose. He is absolutely dumb enough to think that, oh, I'm turning this off when he is, in fact, turning it all the way up. But yes, for all the reasons you just said, he would want the people to know that this is what's happening. If he has seemingly been participating in this documentary with this crew and wearing this microphone every workday for like about five years. Um, So, you know, there is that element as well. The next morning we find out that there are consequences to Holly and Michael's actions. Holly and Michael show up together late or what, as we have said in, in this show multiple times, people show up at different times, generally for plot convenience. And so they show up after everyone else is already there and for a bit. Yeah. And, the office has been broken into and robbed. I can't wait for this to the annex because it's seemingly important to the understanding of this. The continuity here. Think back to season four, when the night out episode, when everyone stayed late so they didn't have to come in on the Saturday morning. And the office door, the door to the Dunder Mifflin office, locked. But... They had a key to the building door. Okay, good point. So this is where I'm like, okay, unless the robbers just completely like broke down the door, did Vance Refrigeration, did um, the electric company, did uh, any other entity within that business park have robberies as well? And so that's where I'm like, okay, just the, the continuity air of... Did Holly and Michael go all the way back up to the office then? Like, did they end up having sex in Michael's office? Unclear. However, like, that is, that's something that just stuck out to me of like, okay, they either unlocked both doors or left the building door unlocked completely and then the robbers just figured Dunder Mifflin would be a good target. Also, the gate would have been closed at one point during that. Whether or not it was when... Because seemingly Hank is the one that closes the gate. And if Holly and Michael were still there, they would run into the same issue that everyone else had during the night out. Mm -hmm. Or Hank was still there and he left... And would have shut the gate behind him and locked it. Now, the robbers could have broken the chain or whatever, but 
like they would seemingly have to know that that that's a lot of effort to go through in order to maybe get into an office and maybe not because the door is locked. We're supposed to be thinking, at least my impression is, we're supposed to be thinking that this was a crime of convenience because the door, doors maybe plural, were unlocked. Whereas I think because of the continuity error, it would have had to be a more targeted sort of robbery. Anyways, don't think about it too hard. (laughs) That's the end result. So it seems like a lot of stuff was stolen. The whole office was ransacked. Definitely couldn't have been like a one-person job. Although, again, what are you stealing from an office beyond like computers and printers? Although the cost of electronics in the mid-2000s would have been quite a bit more expensive for like a desktop computer, a laptop, than it is now. Oscar's laptop got stolen. Kevin's surge protector got stolen. The only other thing specifically we see is Angela cancels some checks. So we don't know if like the checkbook would have gotten stolen or what that amounted to. But we don't hear of any other issue besides I think some desktops. So Michael and Holly immediately kind of question themselves. Well more Holly. Yeah more Holly Um, as if like is this their fault because they left the doors unlocked when they left the night before. And so Michael maybe in response to some guilt organizes a auction fundraiser and explains this all to the office in a conference meeting and there are a lot of good points that are brought up angela has the big one of who is coming to this impromptu fundraiser auction right oscar and angela both sort of point out like wait we got our stuff stolen but you're gonna ask us to spend money on services and goods potentially from the rest of us Especially because Michael's putting this together in like one day. Michael thinks that many people will come to this fundraiser auction because of the big ticket item that he is providing, which are two front row tickets to a Bruce Springsteen concert. So the auction is held, I guess, that night after work. Hard to tell, but I think that's the timeline. It's sort of a slapdash effort, but Michael puts together a banner and he has one of those like fundraising, I almost want to call it a thermometer, but you know what I'm talking about where you can fill in, you know, color up to get to your goal. I'll let Curtis explain this more, but Michael has Daryl get some tunes ready. And so Michael calls it Crime Aid based off of the Farm Aid concert from 1981. It was in the 80s. Yeah. um, Based off of that, the name doesn't fully make sense until you get to the auction and Michael tells you it's an acronym. Crime reduces innocence, makes everyone angry, I declare. So there's a lot of commas uh, in that uh, acronym. And in explaining why he chose the name Crime Aid, he also is very confused about what Farm Aid was, right. which he thinks is farmers getting together to fight AIDS, whereas this is them getting together to fight the crime against them or whatever. I guess. And so things start pretty slowly. 
The first item up to bid is a yoga lesson with Holly. And Michael starts the bidding off at $300. And he increases it after no one bids. So he really just, as the auction master, is doing this wrong. You start low and you let the bids increase the price. Michael is trying just to get high dollar sums at the very beginning. And $300 for a yoga lesson is a lot. Granted, YouTube is in its infancy at this point, but now YouTube yoga is like ubiquitous. Michael ends up bidding on the yoga lesson with Holly and spending $300 for it. We don't see a ton of other items. Probably the most memorable is beers with Daryl and the warehouse guys that he just throws up. And Michael's like, well, I've been wanting to do that for a while. And Daryl says, unfortunately, it'd be a conflict of interest. So Michael himself cannot bid on it. Jim bids $5 and Daryl instantly says sold. So something that probably could have gone for like a higher amount only goes for $5. <laughs> the only other items up for bid that we see are Creed. And he, as he says, that is all inclusive. <laughs> Kevin offers to do your taxes, which no one bids on. And Hank, the security guard, apparently is selling CDs or, I don't know, he's auctioning off a concert or whatever. He is not the greatest guitar player. He seems to be a decent blues singer, but mm -hmm. not the greatest guitar player. David Wallace shows up, though, and he does um, auction, right. he does auction off a weekend at his vacation home in Martha's Vineyard, which is a huge um, prize, I would say. It went, started very low. I think Oscar started the bid at like $125, um, which that's something that honestly probably would have started at like $1,000 Um for a weekend in Martha's Vineyard. We don't see what it actually goes for. And Phyllis ends off the night auctioning off a hug from herself. And this item actually turns into a bit of a bidding war. Bob Vance starts off the bidding, I think at somewhere like $100. Then David Wallace gets involved and he bids 200 And everyone's bidding by hundreds instead of like lower amounts. Dwight comes in and he bids $300 and one penny. He's only adding one penny. And then Bob Vance will keep upping it by $25, $50, or $100, depending on the amount. And in the end, the, the winner is Bob for $1,000, which is the highest selling item of the whole auction. And I think people were just kind of goaded into this because Michael for a couple reasons. First, Michael really dismisses Phyllis's hug as a legitimate prize. Right. And Bob Vance is like, I'd bid on that. And so I think people just kind of go along to get along. And really like David Wallace, among the, amongst the group, David Wallace is probably the only person that could afford to bid like two hundred dollars on a hug sure well yeah but yeah bob owning his own business sure but like that was always just like a i'm gonna pay for my to hug my wife like just because it looked good type thing you would not bid on a hug for me yes i would of course but the main reason i think people were really getting on this is because 
the big ticket item that Michael advertised, the Bruce Springsteen tickets, didn't exist. Michael made it up to get people to show up, pretty much. Which is a very Michael thing to do. Right. When the time comes to bid on the tickets, he does the thing where he's like, oh, uh, where are they? Are they in my coat pocket? Are they in my pants pocket? Has anybody seen an envelope that says two Bruce Springsteen tickets, backstage passes on it? Oh, you know what? They got stolen. That's what happened. And so, yes, the tickets never existed. And right after he says they got stolen, we see people leaving the auction right away because that was the only reason that they were there. There were some strangers in the crowd. Hard to say, like, where they came from. That was never really explained. Maybe just other businesses within that building. Yeah. So at the end of the night, you know, Holly says to the camera... The Bruce Springsteen tickets were too good to be true, but there's a lot about Michael that seems too good to be true, but so far, it's all true. Hopefully that's not... Uh, it That always came across as like a weird line to me. Yeah, this is another one of those instances that we have talked about on this show where Michael does something really kind of shady or terrible and everybody gets upset at him. And then all of a sudden, they're just not upset at him anymore. Michael flat out lied about the fact that he had these tickets. And then now Holly is just kind of like, oh, oh well, I, I always kind of had a feeling that they didn't exist. Um, and But it's okay. When, you know, Michael lied about everything just to bring people in. As they're cleaning up, Michael and Holly kiss a few times And David is still there and he's talking to Oscar and he happens to just look over and see them kissing and sort of has this concerned look on his face. Then he's out in the parking lot talking to the camera crew and he says, no, I didn't know that Michael and Holly were dating. Now, partly that could be they haven't done the contract yet about, you know, registering their relationship. The other part could be Holly's the HR representative Michael just ended a relationship. I mean, not just, but a couple months back, ended the relationship with Jan. That ended in a lawsuit against the company. There there could be multiple reasons, but it does seem that David has quite a bit of concern about this. Something that is happening in the background of all of this is things moving forward for Andy and Angela's wedding. We see Andy walking around the office, handing out their save the dates, which is sure is tacky. But as we know, when we got married, it's very expensive. So you have to cut costs somewhere and saving the probably what ended up being like $8 maybe in postage that those little things add up. It was definitely more than $8. Well, then, oh, and okay. also, he we have to assume he sent out the rest of them. So Right. I mean, we didn't send out Save the Dates at all as a way to cut costs. Correct. Andy also put, like, confetti in the bottom of the envelopes. Dwight is very thrown off by this because he didn't know that they had actually picked a date. 
And Angela is looking very nervous and guilty as he looks over at her. In his anger, Dwight heads to the break room to make a knife out of wood using a knife. And Phyllis goes back there just to get some snacks and just tries to talk to Dwight about the situation. And Dwight is trying to play it off like there's nothing going on. And Phyllis reminds him that both she and the camera crew know what is going on between Dwight and Angela. Dwight doesn't want to talk about anything at this point, but later in the kitchen, Phyllis is having lunch and Dwight goes in there and plays it off like he's talking to himself and saying that Angela introduced him to so many things and he doesn't understand why she is marrying Andy of all people. Phyllis explains that Angela is not the kind of person to take risks and Andy isn't much of a risk. She suggests to Dwight to give Angela an ultimatum, pick between him or Andy. If Angela picks Dwight, then great. And if not, he has to move on and know that that's what she wants. Dwight does give this ultimatum to Andy, saying that she needs to choose between the singing buffoon and him or give up all this and she must do so by 6.14 that evening. Dwight has set a timer on his watch and the timer goes off for 6.14 in the middle of the auction. It's while Hank is doing uh, his blues concert set. He immediately spins around in his chair to look at Angela. Angela, realizing that the time has come, turns in her chair to angle her body towards Andy, who is standing, it looks like he's getting a drink or something, standing uh, away from Angela. So that gives Dwight his answer. Now he's pretty crushed by this. He tells Phyllis there's an emergency that her tires have been let out of air, which he actually does that to her, and says, you know, I gave her the ultimatum, and it seems like she chose Andy. What do I do now? She says, well, now you have to move on. And Dwight is really upset by this because he thought she had some master plan that she was kind of unfolding to him bit by bit. And this was going to help him get Angela back. But that's not really the case. She was just being honest and saying, you got to tell her it's either him or me. And he's like, okay, I moved on. Now how do I get her back? And... Phyllis is, she's very kind about it. And she just says, you know, everyone deserves to be with someone that wants to be with them. And it's so true. And it's sort of heartbreaking that this is what Angela and Dwight's relationship has come to. Of course, Dwight can't be very nice about things. And so their interaction ends off with him insulting Phyllis by saying like she wanted this to happen all along so she could remain head of the party planning committee and this was just her being selfish and so phyllis ends up slapping dwight in the face and then he says you slap like a girl and storms off we also get a brief check-in on the state of the long distance relationship between jim and pam At one point in the episode, Jim is listening to a voicemail on his work phone, and he says that Pam must have gone out the night before, got in, and accidentally called his 
work phone and left a very, very long voicemail message, which is seemingly like just noise happening in the background. Like I can't tell if Pam called Jim with the intention of talking to him slash leaving a message and then forgot and then just went about hanging out with her friends. This comes up later in the episode when we see Jim with the rest of the warehouse guys at the bar and in comes Roy. And Roy's just like, I'm not here to beat you up. It's fine. And Roy is wearing a vitamin shop polo, so it appears he has gotten a new job. Right. And so as everyone is just kind of hanging out, Roy asks Jim, hey, how's Pam doing? And Jim's like, she's doing great. She's in New York. She's in art school. She's doing great. She's happy. And oh, by the way, we got engaged. Roy says, congratulations. And just like, so she's happy. And Jim's like, yeah, she... In fact, she went out last night with her friends until like 8 o'clock in the morning. And Roy says something really weird here and says, huh, I thought you were her friend. He, yeah, he's alluding to the fact like, well, you are just a friend. Like, you kind of need to watch your back. It's kind of weird. He's forgetting what he learned in season three when him and Pam had the sort of relationship post-mortem and realized that they did not have a great relationship. He wasn't an attentive boyfriend. They weren't really meant to be. And it's weird because Roy definitely had a jealous streak in him and Pam definitely would hide the friendship that she and Jim had when Roy was around. But also there would be periods where Roy would be like, I'm so glad that you're here for her so she doesn't have to bother me with thoughts, feelings, stuff from the office, things like that. So it could be an underhanded thing to make Jim concerned. Like, hey, Pam just falls for her friends or something. I hadn't thought of it that way. And Jim's reaction to this is equally questionable because he gets this like right after Roy says this he kind of gets this huh yeah you're you're right kind of look look on his face and the next thing we see is him in the car and he says he's going to see Pam in New York yeah I'm not sure an impromptu surprise visit on seemingly a weeknight is really Uh, the best way to go about this probably just a phone call right but Jim's response of oh she may have other friends I gotta go see her is problematic because that kind of implies that she can't have other friends I don't think it was that or that he's being replaced I don't think it was that at all I think he's just concerned okay this is long distance like is she having is there a budding romance starting and then he turns the car around like he has this realization of no I'm not that guy and we are not that couple and just has a little bit more faith in them sure but from what we have seen there is no reason for Jim to think that at all no it's just insecurity because of Roy sure but like we saw Roy had every reason to be 
insecure right. because of what we see of the relationship between Jim and Pam. That was always more than a friendship. Right. Whereas the only thing that we have ever seen Pam and with her friends is just that one shot of the group of people talking and like joking around. Everyone has like moments of insecurity. And I think that Jim was not feeling insecure or have any thoughts about that until Roy pointed out, well, you were just her friend to our relationship and now you're engaged. And I think that can just be scary. Sure, I guess. I don't I don't understand why you're not seeing this, Curtis. I, I do see what you're saying, but I don't think there is any evidence that we have seen. Which is why he turned around. Right, but the the reaction should never be there in the first place, honestly. Like if your if your initial reaction is, Oh, I gotta go get in my car and make sure my girlfriend's not cheating on me, even though there's no evidence of to to suggest this i don't know if there's it was. a there's some insecurity problems that you need that need to be addressed i don't know if it was necessarily i need to go make sure she's not cheating on me i think it was i need to give we need to have some face time to just remember our spark because is distance creating what's the what's the adage about distance out of sight out of mind sort of thing Rather than, like, distance makes the heart grow fonder. And I think he's just, is this an out of sight, out of mind? You know, she went out with her friends. And, again, they might have, like, two or three weeks left in this 12-week program. Yeah. Not everyone can be as secure as you, Curtis. I guess not. So that really wraps up this episode. So let's go to the annex with Antoinette and find out any fun facts about the episode. Aside from the continuity air about the locking doors that I pointed out earlier, there is a scene uh, from the auction in which Michael says that they there were no statistics about office robberies on Wikipedia, so he didn't know how many took place every minute. Because we know Michael likes that type of stuff. Um, when they did the fun run, he talked about how many people get rabies every minute in America. So, so many people after this episode aired went to Wikipedia to make an office robbery statistics page with no evidence that Wikipedia now links office robbery statistics straight to the crime aid uh, (laughs) episode page. And that's all I have. There are some extremely disappointing lack of fun facts about the season five episodes. Curtis, who do we have getting fired in this episode? We lose both Michael and Holly in this episode. If not because of their unauthorized, for lack of a better word, relationship that David sees at the end of the episode. If not for that, then for negligence, essentially. Leaving doors unlocked that caused the office to get robbed and cost the company money, essentially. Right. Had they not gotten robbed, like, no one would have known, no harm, no foul, potentially, sort of thing. But because they did, and because, yes, it was their negligence, probably not great. It is Michael's second firing this season. It's his 39th overall, and it is Holly's first firing this season, and it is her first overall. 
So we are back down to having it be only Daryl that has not been fired. We do see Daryl in this episode briefly, but he does not do anything to get fired. What is your Dundee? Uh, my Dundee Award is the Master of Self-Defense, and it goes to Andy. The day after the robbery, we see Angela and Andy talking at her desk, and she's telling Andy how she's never felt safe here. And he lets her know that she is always safe with him because he is a very good screamer. And that is just one of the best lines because like a lot of Andy lines, it's just so casually delivered and it fits Andy to a T. It's similar to like, like every kid. I hated golf lessons. I'd rather hang out with the sailing club. It just is very much his persona. What is your Dundee award? My Dundee is most overrated and that goes to Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I'm not a big Bruce fan. I can't stand Bruce Springsteen. I don't even like his Christmas song. Like he, he's just, it is, it is, he is very much a person of the times. And like, I don't know if he's gotten any new fans in the last like 30 years. Like he is very just generational. He, whoever was in there, you know, early to mid 20s to their late 40s in that time period just loves him and i don't know if anybody else actually likes him so basically it's boomers just he is the king of the boomers because he just has that he's pick yourself up by your bootstraps blue collar guy he's not a good singer he's he really isn't a good singer and when he tries to sing, it just goes terribly. But people love him. Can I tell you the only thing I appreciate about Bruce Springsteen? What's that? Steve Van Zandt. Sure. Because I love him. He is my favorite character on The Sopranos. And apparently that was like his first acting gig or something. Yeah. And he just was part of the E Street Band. And is a pretty now a notable member. But that's the only thing Bruce is good for. Right. There is a joke on Twitter that he is essentially every middle-aged white sports writer's favorite artist. <laughs> and it it generally is true. Like, it, it is a stereotype that holds a lot of truth because anytime you see, like, something Bruce Springsteen related on Twitter, it's, at least in my timeline, it is coming from a middle-aged white sports really? writer. Really? I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. One of the one of my f- absolute favorite things happens in this episode. It is Daryl describing the 10 favorite Bruce Springsteen songs that Michael gave him to make a CD of and Daryl says that three of them were Huey Lewis and the News songs. One of them was Fast Car by Tracy Chapman and the other was Short People by Randy Newman. And honestly, that's a pretty good top 10 list for of Bruce Springsteen songs because you get five fewer Bruce Springsteen songs. And the only song that ever plays during the auction is a Huey Lewis and the News song. Yes. Who is your employee of the month? My employee of the month is Phyllis because she gave a lot of sage advice to Dwight. And I think she's she's pretty good at that. And also she 
got a thousand dollars for her hug and that was the highest selling item what about you my pick is jim only because he won the auction item of going to get a beer with the warehouse guys and then they left right after and they, that and getting to leave early <laughs> yep so that does it for this week's episode please follow us on twitter at downsizing pod to get all the latest updates and keep listening to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you are listening to us. Be sure to rate, subscribe, like, and comment wherever you can in order to keep getting our name out there. We appreciate you guys listening to us, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.